Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Go. Welcome to IndyCar Weekly. I'm your host, Indy Star Motorsports editor, Nat Newell, and I'm joined by our racing insider, Nathan Brown. We're going to recap, obviously, the Indianapolis 500 um, and uh, what's ahead uh, in IndyCar. Um, well, let's start with, uh, obviously, the uh, the winner of the 500, Tiffany Masato. Um, he, uh, race day, uh, kind of got lost in the, uh, a little bit got lost in the, uh, the controversy around the, fin- the finish with not the... Uh, um, you know, without letting them uh, to go to the shootout. Um, what, what were your thoughts? Uh, you obviously got to talk to Takuma the next day, and uh, just what were your thoughts on him adding, winning his second uh, Indy 500? Yeah, um, you know, it's really interesting now that uh, Takuma is now a, a two-time winner of this race. He's only won six IndyCar races total, including his two 500s. So. Um, certainly someone that, uh, particularly these last couple of years has really been stepping up, um, when the moment has been really big, but I think what this does for Takuma, just in terms of his career, it really, even just with six wins really in a lot of ways cements him as one of the, um, you know, strongest drivers of the, the two thousands in terms of IndyCar. I mean, you, the, the list of guys that have won two 500s um, since the, the turn of the century, you've got Dario Franchitti, Elio Castroneves, um, Dan Weldon, Juan Pablo Montoya, and Takuma Sato. Um, and, and that's it. I mean, obviously you would include Scott Dixon on a list of all-time greats, of course. Um, but really after him, I mean, that I mean you've got a, a bunch of really, really strong names with Tony Kanaan and... Um, Joseph Newgarden and Will Power and guys like that. So maybe Sato fits in there. He's not maybe not quite the driver that, say, Elio or Dario was um, from a resume standpoint. But this, I, I, I just really think that uh, this does a lot for, for him, for his career. Maybe it lengthens his career a little bit. He's in his, uh, his third year with Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan Racing. He had won two races a, uh, a year ago, uh, and adding this... Maybe just uh, lengthens the time at 43 years old that he sticks around in this sport. I talked to him on Monday, and he doesn't uh, in any way seem ready to hang things up. He said, you know, he's uh, maybe not physically where someone like a a 20-year-old Colton Herta is, but in terms of his driving skills and his um, preparation and and execution, I'd say he's at his peak. We saw what maybe kind of a quote-unquote fearless and in some ways reckless Takuma Sato could, could, could be like early in his career. He made that daring pass at the very end of the 2012 Indy 500 in a duel with Dario Franchitti uh, and ended up spinning, somehow not spinning Dario himself in the uh, first turn of the final lap of the race. But that was kind of what we knew Sato for for such a long time. He toiled... Um, with AJ Foyt racing for four years, uh, just kind of wasn't quite able to get that program to where we all hope it can be one day. Uh, goes and wins a 500 in a one-year deal with Andretti and then goes to, to Ray Hall and has been a really big piece, of course, along with Graham Ray Hall and starting to build that program up into a, 
a team that can be a consistent contender with the quote-unquote big three. So uh, I think this is not only really big for Takuma, but really big for Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanning, and Racing. They, they put two cars in the top three in the biggest race of the year, uh, and uh, it will be interesting to see now that they have two drivers in the top six of the standings with seven races still to go, what they can maybe do to um, to make this uh, uh, a big sea change type of year for them. What uh, you obviously mentioned uh, Sato's reputation as being, uh, I, I guess, reckless at times uh, earlier in his career. Has that? Do you get the sense that's changed among the other drivers, or where do they? Uh, what what, are, what, are the, what do they think about him? And do you think that this, winning the second five hundred changes any of that? Yeah, it's hard to tell exactly if if just winning this race changes that. It, it does seem like you know from the the congrats that he got all around the paddock. Um, you do get the sense that he's fairly well respected. Uh, I I do think I I don't you know having not been around the sport five years ago, I don't know exactly how or when that has changed, but it does really seem like he's kind of seen in a, a little bit different light than maybe he was um, you know six seven eight years ago. I mean he come he comes into the sport kind of after a I wouldn't say a failed Formula One career, but just not you know never reached the heights of you know, someone who is a, a truly big name in that sport comes in here and, you know, his first really, really big splash is that 2012 duel with Dario uh, in the 500 where he, you know, makes a, a pretty daring move in somewhere that you didn't necessarily have to make it um, and and then kind of gets lost there for several years, as I mentioned, with AJ Foyt Racing. And that was probably a time most specifically in his career where he was, you know, probably making some daring moves a little bit uh, I don't, maybe reckless is a little bit too strong a word, but um, a little bit um, iffy to be by on the track at times when things are getting down to the wire. And I think from the way that we saw him win this race on Sunday, it was really very methodical. He was very, very much okay being kind of out of the spotlight for three-fourths of that race, letting Scott Dixon take the lead as long as he was sticking around in the top three or four um, within striking distance. He said even bo- even before and then also after the race that he was planning on just at least spending those first 100 laps just kind of learning about his car and not necessarily wanting to take the lead. Uh, and and when he was given the opportunity to do so right, a- right around lap 150 or so, he took it uh, and all of a sudden had the best car out there. He- Scott Dixon tried to make a pass on him maybe three or four times in those last 15 laps where it really looked like Scott maybe had a chance and Sato held him back every single time. So uh, as dominant as Scott was uh, throughout the you know three quarters of that race, um, Sato had the better car at the end of the race, and that's uh, when it really, really counts. Um, and you obviously mentioned Ray Hall's success in the race and uh, really success this season. Um it, it, how important is that for IndyCar? I mean, obviously, everybody talks about the big three, and the big three are always going to be the big three. It's just the, the facts of life. But uh, um, how important would it be for a fourth team to jump in there? Or is this just, you know, they're having a good stretch and, uh, um, you know, and taking advantage of uh, some of the other team's struggles? Yeah, I mean, I would say if you're IndyCar and you're, you're needing to start preparing to – uh, you know, build up some some new stars as we you know see it's you know it's likely that you know over these next couple of years the likes of 
Scott Dixon and Tony Kanaan, um, you know, maybe Will Power at some point, Ryan Hunter Ray, all these guys eventually, um, you know, maybe not in the next year or two, but eventually these guys are going to retire from the sport and you're going to need to have big names um, to come in and replace them. And it's, it would only be beneficial for the sport to have more stars. And if you can have them on some of these other teams like, like Ray Hall, Letterman Landing and Racing, you know, if, if Graham Ray Hall can become, you know, a major star in this sport, if, if Aero McLaren SP can build uh, Pato Award and Oliver Askew into some big stars, it'd be so huge for this sport. But you've, you've had, um, it's been so, so long. I think maybe even back to like 2002 since someone not from Penske, Ganassi, or Andretti has won a series championship. It's just so hard for one of these somewhat smaller teams to be able to crack through on a consistent basis and and have a, a dominant enough season to, to make a mark. And we're starting to see the evidence that it's maybe possible. You've got Pato Award in third in the series right now. Uh, you've got Graham in fourth. You've got Takuma Sato in sixth. So these guys are starting to creep up there. Um, and it'll be, it'll be really exciting these last seven races of the year because those spots from three through six or seven are so, uh, so compressed um, that you could potentially see, you know, a, a Pata Award finishing third and Graham fourth, maybe Sato even fifth. I mean, to have three somewhat smaller teams in the top five this year would be just incredibly monumental for this series and, and might indicate some sort of a sea change that we could see down the road. Well, let's talk about the guy who is number one and doesn't seem to be, uh, <laughs> doesn't seem like he's going to get threatened this year, Scott Dixon. Um, controversial finish, just sort of set it up for us and let's talk about what uh, what could have happened or should have happened or uh, whatever, uh, whatever direction we want to take. Yeah, so... Uh, I believe it was on lap 196. Uh, Spencer Piggott uh, ended up in the the end of the turn four wall, lost control, and he spins uh, and and ends up getting t-boned pretty bad by uh, what's called the pit lane attenuator, which is just the the divider that separates pit lane from the rest of the racetrack and. At that point, uh, these guys had four laps to go. The leaders did. Um, of course, you go into caution there. But what what some fans were clamoring for, and even you know Scott Dixon said it mildly. Um, he wasn't too you know outwardly outspoken and vocal about it, but certainly would have loved to see it. Is folks were hoping to see a red flag, which we've seen. A handful of times at the 500 over the last uh, six or seven years. It happened in 2014 with eight laps to go. Um, happened last year with a with a several more laps to go. I, I don't remember if it was around 15 or 20, but um, folks were asking that the the race be red flag, which would have meant that um, cars would have eventually stopped and then they would have started the race back up. The the issue with that being uh, if you have Four laps to go. It's going to take at least one, maybe two laps to get all of these cars um, bundled up uh, behind the pace car. And then because because Indy cars function the way they do, you have to take those cars to pit lane. You can't just stop them um, at one point on the track, which is what NASCAR does whenever they red flag a race. You could you could red flag a race and have cars just all lined up on the back stretch of a racetrack because 
NASCAR stock cars can just start up with the driver, um, whereas Indy cars have to have the help of their crews to actually ignite and start the cars. So you lose at least one lap, if not two, um, just kind of winding things down, which means then you're at, at, at best three laps to go in this race. You'd have to have two yellow laps um, once you restarted it. Uh, and that leads to a one lap shootout, which in any amount, any kind of racing on an oval is dangerous. We've seen what can happen with that in NASCAR numerous times. That's was one of the th um, things that happened that caused uh, Ryan Newman's really, really scary accident at Daytona this year. Uh, but NASCAR has the ability to go into a quote unquote overtime where, yeah, it's the Daytona 500, but you might end up running uh, you know, 515 or 520 miles. And that's just, it's not, uh, let, let's say not kosher, uh, for the Indy car and Indy 500 crowd. This is a 500 mile race. Uh, and it, it should always and forever stay at that length. So if you're Indy car, you can't go over that limit. Uh, and it just got down to, there were just too few laps to go, um, to, to try and work out a red flag situation. If that crash had happened, two or three laps before similar much more similar to 2014 i think it could have happened there's a back and forth on exactly how long it was going to take for them to repair the attenuator some folks have said maybe it only takes 20 to 25 minutes other estimations have been right around an hour which then if you're nbc uh and indycar you're running right up against that um 6 p.m end of the broadcast window uh cutting into local news, which is where a lot of those affiliates uh, make so much money. Um, it just would have been, it was a, a tough decision to make, probably would have been even tougher if it if there were six or eight laps left in the race. Uh, maybe in some ways IndyCar is kind of thankful that they didn't have to make that decision with NBC and they could just uh, yellow flag this and, and Takuma Sato, um, you know, crosses the, the yard of bricks under a yellow flag, which is not uncommon. We've seen that happen a handful of times here at the 500. Dario Franchitti won all three of his Indy 500s under a yellow flag finish. Um, so it's not something that we haven't seen in the last 20 to 30 years. It was just unfortunate given uh, how exciting a duel between Dixon and Sato might have been. And with all the exciting duels we've seen down to the wire these last couple of years that we didn't get another one of those this year. Yeah, I was going to ask, does it make sense for the IndyCar to create some kind of plan where if this happens in, in the five, you know, inside the final five laps, do you just agree you're going to do five more laps or whatever? But uh, I guess, I mean, I know you mentioned obviously that it's the five Indianapolis 500, and that's understandably very important to people. I guess the other question is, is that, you know, is, is that fair to start out with leading the race? Are you putting him in a bad spot um, that he hasn't done anything wrong? Um you know, and all of a sudden he's got to, you know, win the race twice, basically. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's a great point. And, and Scott Dixon, to his defense, said, you know, he wished uh, that IndyCar would have considered it maybe a little bit longer. Um, I think he probably understood the situation more with four laps to go than if there had been, say, six laps to go. Um, he was under the impression that Sato might have been getting pretty short on fuel. The team um, said after the race that they were perfectly fine, even though they had pitted one lap before Scott and had led so many more laps in that final stint. Um, so we'll take them at their word and say that they would have been fine on fuel. Um, 
you know, if, if things had gone green again, it, yeah, it would have been exciting. Um, I guess the, the thing that I've heard the most over these last couple of days that, um, I think makes a lot of sense that, you know, yes, Sato, I think in a restart might've been a little bit of a sitting duck, um, had the race restarted, but we've seen these races, this happen a handful of time times over these last couple of years. Um, I mean, Tony Kanaan is a great example. he, he takes over that lead of that 2013 or uh yeah 2013 race really late and um all of a sudden that that race gets a yellow flag to the end and he ends up winning the race you just if you if you want to have a serious chance of winning this race you almost kind of have to be leading it with 10 to go and not only be leading there but be in a position where you can fend up, fend someone else off or at least give up the lead and then be able to take it back. And Sato kind of, you know, in some ways he, he backs into this one in some ways, but it's not like, I mean, he'd been leading, he led, I think the last 15 laps of this race. So it's not like he just took over with six or seven to go and, and ends up lucking into this one. I think, you know, Scott even said in his post-race remarks, you know, that, you know, they, they won this race, they earned it. They had the better car at the end um, as much as he would have loved to, have battled um, Sato a little bit more in those last four laps. I don't. I don't think that there's any um, any feeling across the paddock that Sato is in any way an, an undeserving winner of this race. Yeah, that's what it sort of seemed to me is that you know, like as you mentioned earlier, Dixon did try to pass him. Or, you know, before obviously the the uh, the yellow came out, um, it wasn't able to. So I mean, I really it didn't seem like it seemed like Sato was going to win if it didn't happen. And then it was just a matter of if they had red flag that could Dixon have caught him and I'd be on which again is a whole nother um yeah it's just told two totally different scenarios so it's hard for me to think think uh you know as you said that it wasn't a well-deserved win by Sato um let's, uh, you know another controversial moment involving Sato was the uh Alexander Rossi uh there was an incident in pit lane where Rossi got punished for and Sato didn't uh, what were the feelings about that, uh, you know, looking back at it um, post-race? Yeah, so set up the scene a little bit. So I think it was on lap 131, just about the whole field was in for um, a somewhat routine pit stop. Uh, Sato um, and Pato Ward uh, were just a couple pit stalls back behind Rossi's team. And they had pulled out. Um, and that, that pit lane, you have two different... Um, two different lanes, but if you have cars squished up tight enough to the perimeter, you can actually fit cars three wide there. Um, so Pato and Sato um, were were lined up. They were coming, and and Rossi just uh, you know they finished their stop. One of his tire changers bumbled, um, getting one of those tires off and and getting the replacement on. So it. It had already probably lasted a half second to a second longer than they had wanted it to to begin with. Um, Rossi gets released by his chief engineer uh, and just peels off and and really just runs right into uh, the left front tire of Sato. There he was, so he was kind of in the middle between Pato Award um, and and Rossi. So, I mean, you can look at the video both ways. In some ways, it looks like, you know, maybe Rossi veered too far um, into, you know, could have maybe held things a little bit tighter. But I think it's really just one of those bang, bang plays that it's it's hard to even know when Rossi was released, um, you know, if, if Sato was even out there. And when you have, 
you know, close to 30 cars all in pit lane at once. If, if, uh, if someone's crew doesn't see someone that is quite literally oncoming in traffic, they're going to release someone and just hope that if someone pops up out of nowhere that they stop. Uh, but, but Takuma Sato just wasn't in a position to do that. He and Rossi make contact. They ruled that uh, Rossi was uh, recklessly released from his pit stall, which is, again, not his fault, but his team's fault. So at that point in the race, he had actually been trading off the lead every couple laps with Scott Dixon to try and break away from the field a little bit. So he he goes from sitting in the top three or four cars to having to go back to the back of the lead car or lead lap cars, which is right around 23rd or so, I believe. Um, they have a, a restart after um, a, a yellow caution. I uh, can't remember whose car that was at the moment, but um, might've been Alex Pelos, if I remember correctly. Uh, Rossi goes and goes on a just an incredible restart tear passes five or six cars makes his way up to like 17th or 16th or so but then he said uh after the race and some quotes that i've seen that you know their car was really set up from a downforce level to be a, a top five car today of uh that day they weren't really set up to run really well in dirty air uh in traffic and heavy traffic like that and he just kind of you know, lost control of it, um, lost traction going into, um, uh, I think it was turn two maybe, and just went right, slid right into the wall, a kind of similar crash than that we saw several times, um, right in that turn one, turn two area, uh, probably three or four times on, on Sunday. Uh, and so he's now out of the race about lap 145 or so. It was a disappointing finish because Along with Sato having a great car, Rossi had been right up there in the top three or four all day with Dixon as well. And um, having another car in the mix there toward the end would have just been that much more exciting. Uh, you know, if, if we'd had a two or three car duel, we had something close to that last year. Sato wasn't quite close enough to Pagano and Rossi to play much into that battle down the wire. But he was, I think he only finished maybe a half second back from Pagano in the in the end at the actual finish. So, man, if, if Rossi, a feisty Alexander Rossi, um, a veteran Scott Dixon and a methodical Takuma Sada would have made for a, a super exciting finish if, we've, if we'd been able to go all the way to the green there at the end. Uh, yeah, it's a, just from, a, from our standpoint, or at least my standpoint, man, in the media, you always want to see Alexander Rossi in the mix just because he's a he's a popular driver but also he's just uh uh, i mean he's uh you know he's an emotional guy or he's a very uh um you know he you know he wears his heart to sleep kind of thing so he's always great theater um so it's always a shame to see him get knocked out but it's been you know sort of what what has he's dealt with all year he's really he's really dealt with you know struggling with bad luck throughout the season really has Uh, yeah i mean he he answered this race, I mean, already kind of out of the the championship hunt, but I think he he done a lot over um, you know Road America and Iowa to work his way back up into at least the top ten. Uh, I can't remember exactly where he sits off the top of my head right now, but he was you know you know if he goes and, and gets you know second or you know, maybe happens to win this race, I, it'd be probably a little bit of an exaggeration to say that he's back in the championship hunt, but he's at least probably at that point factoring into the top three, top four, top five, which is where we're used to seeing him um, be over these last two years when he's been 
um, you know, kind of the, the second or third best guy when you're, you're talking about Joseph Newgarden, Simon Pagano, and Scott Dixon. So it would have been uh, maybe a little bit more exciting, you know, if he factors into this race toward the end and, and then we see, you know, maybe he goes and maybe he goes and, and sweeps both races at Gateway this weekend too. And all of a sudden, you've got Rossi seriously challenging Dixon in the title race. Obviously, that's not going to happen this year. But um, you, you're you're totally right. It's it's always exciting when he's in the hunt, and it's been a little bit disappointing this year, just with so many um, events that really have been out of his control. Uh, to have a, a driver that is so good and so strong to just kind of be held back by a, a series of some really unfortunate luck. The whole talk of the race uh, prior to uh, Sunday was obviously Marco Andretti uh, winning the pole. Um, and then, but then, I mean, it, within the first lap, he had fallen back, and he just there was no we had no, basically no presence throughout the day. Uh, I mean, that's sort of this has been mostly the story for the family uh, uh, forever at at the IMS. Uh, what was your reaction to? Uh, I mean, first. Andretti, you know, getting the pole and then just sort of the letdown of it not uh, amounting to much during the race. Yeah, I mean, it was exciting. All of the the lead up stuff to the race was really exciting just to see Marco in a little bit of a different light than we've been able to see him in in the past. I mean, I I, I said it to several people um, back on Thursday at IndyCar's Indy 500 Media Day that we got to have in person with all of the drivers, and he he just. I don't know if it's, um, you know, his just mental, you know, his confidence in himself, whatever it was, he was very much more out of his shell than we've seen, than I've seen him in my year covering the sport. And then I think a lot of people have seen him over these last several years. I mean, just, he seemed confident. He had this, almost this aura of uh, a face of the series, which um, you would never have said that Marco Andretti has been in his IndyCar career since he, um, you know, came so incredibly close to winning the Indy 500 in, in 2006. He just seemed he was very affable. He was, you know, cracking jokes. He was lighthearted. He was, um, you know, given really great, thoughtful answers to questions. Um, you know, he's just, he seemed very comfortable in that role. And it was really disappointing to see, um, you know, really almost every Andretti car, I guess, outside of Rossi's. I think, I think Ryan Hunter Ray was up there for a little while maybe the first half or so of the race, but um, none of the Andretti cars really seemed like they had for as much luck and, and uh, success as they had during practice and qualifying um, throughout the lead up to this 500 just didn't quite have the car setups dialed in quite like um, their other Honda counterparts in uh, Chip Ganassi and, uh, and Ray Hall for whatever reason, you know, it was really weird to see, really weird to see Marco, uh, go and and take pole and then and go down in the lore of some of these drivers that have won pole and then not let any laps in the race. Um, I know I don't know the number of those guys off the top of my head, but I know that that list is is not very long. Um, and it's it's a very weird list to to be on. Hopefully, they can take whatever successes they found uh, in the lead up to that race and and put them forward to the rest of this year. You know, he's still. Uh, down toward the bottom of the series standings for uh, full-time drivers. Um, and you would have hoped that you know he could have at least finished in the top 10. I think he ended up 13th. So uh, it, was a, it was a bummer to see him down there for as much success as he had uh, in the lead-up. Hopefully they can take something from that. 
uh, and just continue to build. Uh, but definitely a bummer of bummer of a race for all those folks that were really looking forward to seeing uh, an Andretti resurgence uh, and hopefully putting someone on the podium. Yeah, it was a weird. I mean, for for Andretti to be so dominant in qualifying and then not, uh, uh, you know, and then not perform well during the race is just wild. I mean, it was another, just a really a lot of odd things happening uh, this year at the Indy 500. Um, at the top of that list, of course, was the, that that there were no fans. Um, I think uh, we're all in agreement that that was certain, was likely the right call not to have fans there given the pandemic. Um, I can tell you, like, from laps, you know, whatever it was, 10 to 195, I don't know if I, – I did not notice it. I mean, I, it shocks me. I, I figured I would. Um, we do a live show uh, right off of Gasoline Alley every year. And anytime and we, and we're down there, it's, it's literally body-to-body. Body. I have to get back to the media center or something <laughs> like that. And there was no, I mean, nobody there this year, so it was just, it was just really weird. But then once the race gets started, I didn't really think about it. And then at the end, there's no one there to cheer and things like that. But what was your thoughts on it? I mean, how was it from your end? Of things? I, I felt almost exactly the same way. I, um, I mean, I know part of that stems from the fact that you know, as as media, we're probably going to be watching the race in the fourth floor of a media center, and so. We're, we're as, as odd as it sounds, you know, actually at the race, but we're watching the TV broadcast um, just because it's the best place to, to get information and, and keep up with everything that's going on on the two and a half mile oval track. But I would agree, you know, after I, I got a chance to stand outside close to the start finish line and, and watch all the pomp and circumstance at the start, um, you know, it was, it was very very jarring to see all those cars tear by the start finish line and, and you just don't have a single sight of a of one fan um and your your eyesight your eye line of sight and that was very weird but as immediately as i stepped back into the media center um you just don't really notice it i mean nbc did a pretty good job of of honing in on the cars yes if you were really looking for it you can see in the background of these cars um, on track that yes, there are no fans there, but it's not something that really even, I don't think caught my eye all that much um, just because frankly, the action on track was really pretty good throughout the race. Um, But there, there were those, you know, really stark moments, whether it was um, the finish to Jim Cornelison's back home again in Indiana, whether it was um, the lack of, thundering applause for Roger Penske's uh, command for drivers to start engines. Um, there were just all, all sorts of things, I think, like that. That's where you really noticed the lack of fans there the most. And then, of course, at the end of the race, when Takuma Sato is being hoisted up on the um, on the platform and the lift that they have there in, in victory lane, you know, he's dousing himself in milk, and you have basically all you can hear and uh, and can really see is the the celebration of his pit crew and uh, and the folks from Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan. But beyond that, it was I imagine such a very very weird um, feeling for a driver to have won this race. I think there were lots of folks that were going in, you know, from a fan perspective that were almost hoping in some way that a uh, a driver that had already won this race, one of the eight that entered um, that had won in the past, would go and win again. So this. You know, first Indy 500 win um, for a driver wasn't in this um, in these circumstances. I know 
lots of drivers who hadn't won this race said repeatedly over and over again when they were asked a question on media day and before that you know they will take any indy 500 that they can get but I'm, I'm sure in the back of your mind as a driver, even if you win this 2021 for the first time, you're also thinking, man, I really, really hope that I win this race again because I don't want this to be my only moment of, uh, of extreme joy at the 500. Um, so luckily we, we got a repeat winner and hopefully they're able to have fans there uh, in 2021, which is oddly enough only about eight or nine months away. Yeah, it'll be the shortest uh, reign for an Indy 500 winner in uh, history, uh, which is an interesting uh, uh, footnote, I guess, on the whole thing. I, I, mean, I thought uh, the track did everything they could to uh, uh, make the best of just an awful situation for everybody involved in terms of no fans. And like I say, clearly the right call um, to not put people at risk. Um, I thought the, uh, the on Saturday you went out with Simon Pagano. They went out to see all the drivers went out to see longtime ticket see, you know ticket holders. Uh, I thought that was a really cool idea on the part of IMS. Um, I just sort of talk, what talk walk us through what, what that was like going out there with with Simon on Saturday. Yeah, that I mean, the, you you got a chance to see um, you know for for all the criticism that IMS and IndyCar and Roger Penske and Mark Miles and Doug Bowles got from fans that really thought it was possible to be here, from fans that thought that, you know, they were pressured into this decision from, you know, whether it was government folks or otherwise, um, even though they had never said that publicly. And really, I don't believe from conversations that I've had with them that that was the case of how this all happened. Um, they really went out of their way to do a couple of really creative things for fans. One of them um, was that that you mentioned, and I'll get to that in a second. Another really cool thing that I thought um, on Saturday, not only did they make the, the driver's meeting public and you could watch it um, and stream it on uh, ims.com, uh, but they also had a message where all 33 drivers sat in um, a seat of a, a random fan and they kind of just filmed a, a video message for that fan and they played all of those during the start of the driver's meeting and that's a, a social media clip that's been circulating around. I thought that was really neat. Um, as you mentioned, a, a really cool way to give back to the community of Speedway. Um, they. They went to, uh, after a short parade through downtown Speedway, all the drivers kind of in the the 33 cherry red uh, Camaros that you would have typically seen uh, for the actual parade this year. Um, they, they drove spread out um, to separate homes in the Speedway area and all 33 drivers went and surprised uh, a long time fan or supporter of IMS. Um, the folks that I went to, Susan Purville, uh, she lives just literally right across the street from the track, right around turn four. Um, her house is just right off Georgetown Road. And um, from the way I understand it, um, folks at IMS called all 33 of these fans um, on, I think it was Wednesday evening, and just said, you know, hey, make sure you're at your home between 11 and 1 on Saturday morning slash early afternoon. Uh, they didn't really know what to expect. Susan said that they... You know, she was hoping that, you know, that they'd come by and get some sort of a, you know, a gift package and, you know, maybe Doug Bowles would make an appearance. I think it seemed like she had 
interacted with Doug um, a handful of times. And Doug is someone who just really, really loves interacting with the community. So someone who lives that close, I'm sure, has, has probably seen Doug and, and had a lot of conversations with him. But they, they all got surprised by a driver who was able to spend some time around there, sign some autographs, give him a, uh, a gift package or two. And then the, the additional cool thing uh, that Susan was able to get and I was able to be there to capture was – they actually uh, they dropped the Borg Warner trophy, the like real in the flesh trophy that Sato posed with on Sunday and Monday, uh, and and put it together and set it up literally in her driveway. Um, and she was able to take photos with Pagano and Bulls and and Alexander Rossi actually even showed up for a brief moment. Um, and you could just really tell how special this was. Her husband told me, you know, that she, she cried the day that they, um, announced on August 4th that fans wouldn't be able to attend the race. Um, that she's been, uh, they've been hosting 40 to 50 people parking on their lawn for decades, you know, uh, ahead of this race. And it's just something that is, um, truly ingrained in them. Her, she, the house that she grew up in, uh, is right next door. So she's just lived so close to IMS for so much of her life. Uh, and I know, you know, it was, a, it was a small token of appreciation, but I could tell just from the one house that I visited uh, on on Saturday that it really did mean a lot. And you can really tell that um, outside of being able to hold fans at this race, that IMS just, I mean, they did whatever they could to make up for it. Um, and I hope that fans uh, both locally and from afar can see and notice that and, and understand that, they were, you know, they were looking out for, um, you know, the the best of not only the fans but the drivers and just the health of this series from a long term perspective. Another topic to hit on here is TV ratings, which uh, um, it was the second best uh, ratings by uh, NBC broadcast. It was also, uh, I believe, the worst ever for an Indy 500. Um, you did a story looking into it. Obviously, this is a sort of a layered. Um, issue in terms of uh, it's not really comparing apples to apples given the races in August and everything else going on. Um, how much do you take away from that? It was also a little odd. I thought that the ratings in Indianapolis were down despite it being broadcast live. Um, it, it just, uh, man, what, what, you know, you studied this, you wrote a story on it. What were your, what were your takeaways? Yeah, uh, I mean, it was, it was one of those things that. <laughs> You just really hope that you don't see, and yet we still did, people making just knee-jerk reactions to, I mean, this this thing is so nuanced when you talk about TV ratings. You know, I went through, um, because the, the big thing that even leading up to this race that IMS, IndyCar, and NBC officials were braced for the fact that um, not only were they broadcasting on a, a weird random date that they've never been on before, as we know, this is the first Indy 500 held outside the month of May uh, and the race's 104-year history. Um, it was going up against um, a, a pretty strong Sunday afternoon uh, sports broadcast schedule. You had, you know, it was flanked on both ends by the Xfinity race and the Cup Series race at Dover. Um, both of them were on NBCSN. You had a uh, pretty high-profile NBA playoff game between uh, sensation Luka Doncic on the Mavs and the Clippers, who, of course, are uh, a contender to make and win the finals this year. You had the first event of uh, the final round of the first event of the PGA Tours FedEx Cup playoffs. Um, just, a, I mean, it, it was a much, much tougher um, 
job just to get those casual fans that might just be, you know, the the super casual fans that are just flipping around the TV on a Sunday afternoon and and happen upon the Indy 500 and decide they're going to watch it. You're just going to get fewer of those folks to begin with. Um, the other segment of the the group, and I think this um, was maybe a little bit more surprising, is that just how big of an effect. Uh, just I think the simple date change had. I mean, you have so many folks that are just so used to, even if this is the only race on the IndyCar calendar that they watch every single year, um, they are they they know on the Sunday of Memorial Day weekend they can turn on their TV right around 12 or 1 p.m. and they can watch the Indy 500. And you don't have those fans anymore when the 500 is now the the kickoff event for NBC's big long list of championship events between the Derby and the FedEx Cup playoffs. Um, They just maybe didn't get quite the promo that you would have typically seen in a normal year to begin with. And I think what we saw is just you lost a lot of those casual fans that either didn't know, flat out didn't know this race was going on, whether there was something else that they were doing um, in the, you know, now we're in the middle of summer rather than kind of the, the end of spring with the end of May versus the end of August, whether you had other folks that were, you know, watching something else on TV. I think you, you bring up that drop in Indiana's ratings, uh, in 2016, the last year that this race was broadcast live in central Indiana, you had more than one third of households in the central Indiana area tuned into this race, even though you had tens of thousands of people from this area also going to watch this race live. And this year, of course, none of those folks were watching the race live in person at IMS. You still only had about 25% of uh, households in the central Indiana area tuning in. So I think that shows you just how big, uh, how, how large a segment of this um, population that we, we say is just diehard IndyCar and Indy 500 country that you still got so many people that just tune into this race out of habit on Memorial Day weekend and you just weren't able to grab as many of those folks. I will say that consistently this year, um, IndyCar ratings on NBC in their second year have been trending upward um, compared to last year, which is the first year where NBC was the uh, sole broadcast rights holder for the series. So In general, um, ahead of the 500, everything was looking pretty solid. Uh, Mark Miles even said on a call uh, about a week ago that even with a 14 race schedule, they were still expecting to reach the same number, roughly the same number of uh, number of audience members uh, over those 14 races as they did through 17 a year ago. So that's a good sign. I think the number leading up to the 500 is ratings were up about 10%. So I think the way I come out of this is that IndyCar is still managing to grow their core audience of folks that are going to tune in for basically every single race. I think what you saw this weekend is just a confluence of events that I don't know if it's prevented or just distracted um, the the very, very casual fan from tuning in and watching this race for a number of reasons. And you could tell leading up to it that I think IndyCar and IMS and NBC was, was bracing for something like this. They didn't want to flat out say, you know, we expect the race, the ratings to be the worst they've ever been. But um, the quotes and the folks that I talked to uh, after the race, when these ratings came out on Tuesday afternoon, these they they weren't disappointed. Um, and you can say, 
you know, maybe they're putting on a PR face, but I think legitimately they saw this as a random occurrence and something that we won't continue to see evidence of if uh, this race in 2021 is able to be held on the normal weekend that we've all grown and uh, grown to expect. Yeah, it was a weird uh, feeling. I mean, for me, I've been running our coverage on it for several years now, and it really hit me uh, the, the day after. Normally, it's Memorial Day, and there's this sense of, all right, we had a great performance, and now it's a day off, and uh, we can, uh, it's not really a day off, because uh, you're reading three stories, and I'm going <laughs> to read them and edit them, um, and that's always a little bit of a of a shock to the system. But this year, it wasn't a day off. You know, it wasn't a holiday. It was just another normal day, and it really hit me then that, yeah, you know, just just the whole situation is, uh, you know, just sort of out of uh, sync or out of phase or whatever the word is. Yeah. Um, well, let's look ahead uh, now, doubleheader in St. Louis this weekend. Um, what are your expectations for what we're going to see uh, in St. Louis? Yeah, so um, this race has been back on IndyCar's um, circuit for, uh, for this is now the fourth year. So, um first two years after they took a, a large break, you saw um, Team Penske winners and Joseph Newgarden and Will Power. Um, oddly enough, Takuma Sato actually won this race a year ago in 2019. So um, maybe this is a place where you know he comes in and continues that momentum off the 500. You've seen a handful of times um, where drivers, maybe they don't win a race, but uh, they, they seem to... Um, kind of live off this momentum in Detroit, you know, when that has typically been the doubleheader that's directly followed the 500. So now with two races this weekend, again, we'll see if he can maybe grab one of these. I'd say with how strong Team Penske performed on the ovals at Iowa, um, sweeping those races with Simon Pagino and, and Joseph Newgarden, those are certainly guys that you have to look out for. Um, Scott Dixon has typically been a strong contender in these races in years past, and given how strong his car has been um, all all season long, certainly would look for him to contend again as he did in both of those races in Iowa. Um, I would look for maybe Graham Rahal to be strong. He was strong both days um, at Iowa, got his second podium of the year in the second race at Iowa. And then you maybe, uh, maybe also look toward someone like Alexander Rossi, who's just probably so incredibly fed up with how so much of 2020 is gone to to maybe kind of finally break through for a win. Uh, you know, he has not won a race yet. Will Power has not won a race yet. So maybe those guys find a way to break through. And then maybe the last driver that I'd, I'd throw a flyer on is Connor Daly, um, who's been extremely strong on um, on short ovals this season. You know, he finished. Uh, he, t- he took the pole for one race at Iowa um, and would, you know, was going to finish probably even higher than he did both of those races. I think he finished in the top 10 one race in, at Iowa and kind of fell into maybe like 12th or 13th or so, but um, finished, I think, uh, sixth at Gateway or fin- sixth at, uh, at Texas to start this year with Carlin. Um, and he's finished, I believe, fifth and sixth at these two races, the two times he's raced at Gateway. So maybe a, a dark horse contender to uh, to come out of this pretty strong. So I'd say that that group of five or six between Sato, Graham Rahal, um, Joseph, Simon, Dixon, um, and you know maybe Connor might be uh, names to watch out for. As we've said, this is a doubleheader weekend. You've got races both um, Saturday and Sunday. Those will be broadcast um 
right between 3 and 4 p.m. or so on NBCSN. We have a practice on Friday, um, Friday mid to late afternoon before um, the weird qualification. I don't know, weird, maybe innovative is the nice word to use. Um, on Saturday where the first lap uh, sets the field for Saturday's race and the second lap sets the field for Sunday's race, we saw that at Iowa um, was a, a kind of a cool way to shake things out. It was a, a way that Connor Daly was able to get his first uh, poll of his career um, of, about a month ago. So we will uh, we'll see how this all shakes out. I mean, it certainly seems like Scott Dixon has this championship all but wrapped up. Um, certainly winning the 500 would have completely sealed that for him, but he still got, I, I think, a an 84 point or so lead on Joseph Newgarden in second. And then he's now uh, like right more than a hundred for those, those third through sixth guys that are all bunched up within about 10 points of each other. So it seems like it'd be hard to imagine a way that Scott Dixon doesn't still win this. But I know last year in this race uh, at gateway, he suffered some sort of a mechanical issue. Um, I want to say he finished right around 20th or so. So if you have some sort of uh, fluke, like that where, you know, all of a sudden as great, uh, as he's been all year, you know, he suffers some sort of a mechanical and, and say Joseph Newgarden goes and say sweeps the weekend, uh, or at least gets one win, you know, maybe that's a way that we see this start to look a little bit more realistic. Like we could have a, a true fight. Um, I mean, we'd still have five races to go between a double header at mid Ohio, double header at IMS on the road course and uh, a finale at St. Pete. So I, I wouldn't say Dixon is completely, totally sealed this but you know if he were to go and win a race this weekend or at least finish ahead of joseph newgarden in one of or both of these races i'd say he just has a just about has it locked up yeah well there's seven races left you've got to beat him by an average of 12 points or something like that for yeah a race. that's a lot of, that's a lot of races finishing several spots ahead of scott dixon for what he, we've seen from him this year yeah i mean he's finished in the top five six of the seven races so at, at that point if you're Joseph, you either need to basically win the last win just about every race or, you know, at least finish second or third and hope that Dixon is finishing, you know, 10th or 11th just about every race. So he's, I'd say Joseph, uh, beyond winning the last seven races that we have this year, um, he's not quite got it all in his own power. So we're going to have to see something really miraculous either in a positive manner from joseph or a, a real bummer of an end to the season for dixon in order for it, things not to play out as they stand at the moment all right well that is it for indycar weekly this week uh again i'm gonna do the bush sports editor for indystar nathan brown please go to indystar.com check out all of uh, nathan's great work and uh, we'll uh, talk to you again soon thank you thanks for listening